The third album is called Fits, F-I-T-S. When you type white denim fits into Google, good luck. <laughs> 20 pages of ads and catalogs and clothing stores. So I got to give myself a high five on finding anything about this. Album. I see your point. Yeah, no wonder they're still breaking down their own shit with that kind <laughs> of <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends, musicians, complainers, but most importantly, music fans tell the stories behind history's most influential albums as immortalized in the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We'll hit some history, some stats on the artist and album, and then do a deep dive on a handful of the tracks. We'll be dropping in clips along the way, so don't worry if you're unfamiliar with the album or the artist. Now, as musicians, we've got nothing but respect for anyone who has the guts and dedication to pour their hearts out on the tape, but it's also fun to nitpick the things you love, so just a warning, we'll probably make fun of this album a bit as well. At the end of all this, we're going to vote on whether you actually need to hear this album before you die, and then we'll randomly select next week's album. I want to thank you for inviting us into your ears today, and this week we've got a band that laughs in the face of categorization, and a band who garnered some love from our favorite critic over at The Village Voice, Mr. Robert Criscow, who described one of their prior albums as a surprisingly tuneful, typically subverbal roller coaster ride at Six Flags a few months after Chapter 11. Please keep all extremities within the carriage. Extremities are mother's meat for these guys. As with a lot of reviews, I have no idea what the hell that even <laughs> means, but I do know that he gave two of their other albums an A-, minus, so they're already in Rock's good graces. My name is Adam. I've been playing music for 30 years and played professionally for over a decade, and today I'm going to be leading us through the May 2011 release, You Heard Me, only 12 years ago. The band is White Denim, and the album is called D. So we'll get to our crew introductions in just a minute, but first, let's jump right into the music. With the first track off this album, this is a song called It's Him! Exclamation point. All right, now that we've got some context for what we're listening to this week, let's throw it around the studio today and get our crew introductions by way of a tweet-length review of this album. So let's throw it to Rob first. Thanks, Adam. My tweet-length review of this white denim album is, Do you long for the days of twisty, turny, interlocking guitar parts, a drummer unhinged and on fire, and song titles you could never hope to guess without looking at your phone? You might have a prog rock addiction, my dude. And white denim is a modern scratch to that age-old itch. Ooh, nice. All right. 
Let's uh, throw it over to Alan. Hey, this is Alan here. If I were to make a musical recipe out of my favorite ingredients, it would include a lot of stuff that's on this album. But that doesn't mean that throwing all your favorite shit into a blender and pressing the liquefy button (laughs) will always result in a totally digestible meal. All right, all right. We got Phil this week as well. Phil, what's your tweet? Yeah, guys. So, you know, this week was interesting. I felt like it was the 60s and the 90s in a blender passed through some kind of mid-fi filter. The fi (laughs) is too low for the modern pop ear, but too high for the lo-fi punk junkies. So we'll we'll see. And hey, everybody, this is Adam. And if you're looking for a modern, hard-working rock and roll band whose sound defies classification and who, as far as I can tell, have spent all of their profits on bass distortion pedals, look no further (laughs) than White Den. I'm I'm in now, man. You're... (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad we have a bass player in the house because I'm just curious to to get some opinions. But my thesis for this week is progress because, again, we're hitting a band that does not have a lot of history. They haven't had a chance to impact future generations of musicians. So this week I focused on growth, listening to most of their catalog and their evolution, which I'll try to hit on in a little bit, but I'm going to throw it back around the room and get some more general impressions. How was your week, Rob? Yeah, Adam, I had an overall good week. I think we're going to talk about why this record is both good and difficult to digest, as Alan suggested in his tweet. But I wanted to say, too, that I think another part of the story I want to bring in is that this is approximately what modern rock bands are or should aspire to. The band definitely rocks. There's a lot of care and attention put into the songs. And we're living in a time where it's not that common for guitar-driven rock bands to be out there making a living, making records like this. So in that sense, bravo, I'm already inclined to like and want to support them. Just just wanted to put that out there. But ultimately, takeaway from this week, this record reminds me that I need to practice my instrument more. <laughs> uh, Alan, how was your week? Yeah, so I will admit, like, I knew next to nothing about this band. Like, I've seen the name around various jam band festival marquees and lineups and things like that. So the name was not new, but the music definitely was. I will say I was very pleasantly surprised in going through this. I When I first saw, admittedly, that they were a, quote, indie rock band from Austin, I had some preconceived notions and they weren't that at all, in my opinion. I don't think indie rock really fits them, nor do I think that jam band entirely fits them, even though I think that's definitely their lane. I think that there's a lot of similarities and differences between some of the obvious bands that come up, you know, Fish and um, Freeze McGee and all those bands. I will say the more this is a little bit of a reverse uh, slow burn in that I loved it at first and with each listen liked it a little bit less, but I still Hmm. overall came out, you know, pretty positive on it. Oh, there's a lot to parse here, but I just want to jump right in and say, you think this sounds anything like Fish or Umphreys McGee? To me, the bands that it made me think of were much more Battles and Don Caballero and Don Caballero is a nice. I was having trouble placing the modern math rock thread that I wanted to add. For me, I get weird early Grateful Dead, like pre Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac. That weird, like it's like pentatonic guitar, but it's way deeper than that, and there's a lot of it. You know, the reason I brought the fish comparison, and I, I agree with that. I think that they're all over the place, so it, it's it's hard to yeah. you know in one song they're 
sort of like alt rock, another song they're trying to do like something Latin. Mm-hmm. So I, the genre thing was hard to pin down in general. That's very fair. I, I don't know how you could listen to this though and not get some fish vibes in terms of the heavy arpeggiation of the guitar and the, I think where they stop short is they actually have short songs and they don't go on forever. But within those boundaries, I think there's a lot of that sort of jam rock. I kind of agree with you. I also think there are some John Fishman elements in the, with the drumming, but we, we can move past. Fish came to mind as well for me occasionally. I was somewhat familiar, and by somewhat familiar, I mean I knew one song from these guys. And Phil, I think you had introduced me to these guys probably in 2013 along with Tame Impala. Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah, why sure. those two came together. And you sent over the song At Night, at Night in Dreams, cool tune. And it was from the, the album after this one. And I even went to see them at the Union Transfer in Philly. And they rocked. Great show. But I never act, for whatever reason, that didn't actually prompt me to go dig into their catalogs. Yeah, I had the one, click. you know, the, yeah. it just didn't click. Uh-huh. So this was great to come into this week with a little hint there. They must have had a little extra splash with that Corsicana Lemonade record because I also listened to that one just a bit. And that was my only exposure to the band. And since you're mentioning it, that might be the opening track on that record, At Night in Dreams, but that's yeah. the one that stuck in my head, such mm-hmm. that when you said the band's name, that is the song I immediately thought of. Adam, out of curiosity, how much improvisation did you think there was in the live show? That was what was difficult for me to tell from the record, like how that was going to translate, because it did feel like there could be a lot of improv, right? So what, what they do that I think you could tie that fish thing to... And this was in their live show. This is not necessarily on yeah, the album. Yeah, totally. But in their live show, they do a very good job of merging their songs together. So like the first 25 minutes, they don't stop playing, but it's five songs. And they mm-hmm. might take some extended solos, but it never really breaks down, you know, in that fish sense where it becomes like a noise, avant-garde, art pop solo. They still stick within the structure, but they can definitely, these are not guys who are afraid of playing their instruments. I'm afraid sometimes (laughs) to play. (laughs) I think where I'm coming from on the lack of comparison is something that I guess we'll talk about rolling into how this record is produced, and I have not seen them live. But what I noticed that I thought was a little odd is that all the tones, I mean the guitar tones and even how the vocal is produced, none of them are designed to jump all the way out into the front or to cut through for these big epic moments that I think of as a hallmark of jam bands. There's nothing even approaching Trey tone in the guitar that when they, when a song peaks and a guitar comes in, you know the type of tones I'm talking about. Instead, I felt like all the tones, including the vocal treatment, were very subdued, purposely so, such that listening to it, nothing really stood out that much. Everything was kind of continuous. Yeah, it's another interesting insight. Yeah, like almost like there's, now that I hear you saying, it's like I almost want to compare them to Mars Volta, but that vocal is way out in front, a totally different way on those Mars Volta records. These guys basically self-produced the first four albums. And this album, D, is the first time they got into a professional studio and actually had a label in their ear giving them direction and stuff. And we'll get into that. Yeah, I, I, I got into some of that in my reading this week as well. One of the things that cracked me up too about this band, they're very well received by music critics. And it cracks me up because I feel like music critics love bands like this because it allows them to hone their 
English major chops. Because when I read all these articles, it says more about the journalist than the band. So things like white denim have a sound that defies categorization. Okay, that's cool. And then the journalist goes on to try to describe their sound with like a scrabble board of adjectives and nouns. And here, here are some of them. Grimy, psychedelic soul, maximum R&B, garage rock, shred fusion, acid blues, post-punk, southern rock, prog rock, experimental rock, and my favorite, unclassifiable psychedelia. <laughs> well, if it's unclassifiable, why bother writing the word? This feels like the perfect time to mention that I pulled out the term jazzy noodles from a review. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I do feel like the noodles in this record, and I don't want to say anchor to like the jam band thing for too long, but it does feel like it's like controlled chaos in a sense that I do actually am genuinely curious to see how they would sound live because it sounds like there's a lot going on and that they're sort of hanging on by the edge of their sort of fingernails, but you have a sense that like they're going to land the plane and that they're they know exactly you know what they're doing. Oh yeah, we could just settle this right now. I will happily buy a ticket to the next live show. Yeah, sure. In I'm, my radius, I'm totally on board for that. Yeah. Sounds great. All right, so let's jump into the history a little bit. And this week was a super struggle for me. I had a really hard time finding information on these guys. There's no books. There's no documentaries. Their Wikipedia page is sparse to say the least. So what did Rob do all week then? If there's no books. <laughs> <laughs> Just for some context, their Wikipedia page is under a thousand words, whereas a band like Muse has like 13,000. I had to put on my detective hat here. And so having said all that, we're actually going to end the episode tonight early and just splice in an episode of Joe Rogan podcast already in progress. <laughs> Heat shock proteins, elk meat, athletic greens. DMT. DM thank you. Yes, the DMT. But for this week, I basically scoured the internet for any article I could find from interviews with them over the last decade. I also watched like a two-hour concert of them at Johnny Brenda's in Philly in 2018, and it kicked ass. It was not a, a burden to watch this concert. So if, if you're bored after you listen to this podcast, go find that concert of them in Philly in 2018. It's awesome. Yeah, they. it's a good point. I also had happenstance to watch them live. I watched their KEXP filming that I think yeah. happened when they were promoting the record after this, but it definitely made it even clearer how complex the tunes are watching these guys actually play them. And yeah, they rock. All right. So let's talk about the, who's in the band first off. So you've got a guy named James Petralli on lead vocals and guitar. Now he was born in 1983. So he's about our age. His father was Gino Petralli, a major league ball player for the, namely, he was a catcher for the Blue Jays and Texas Rangers from 82 mm. to 93. And James remembers yeah. hanging out at the clubhouse at the Rangers home field in Arlington, running into like, you know, Nolan Ryan and stuff. And in their prior album, they named a song after one of the guys, I think, who was on the Rangers named Pete Incaviglia. Incaviglia. He was on the, was he on the Phillies? Yeah, Pete Incaviglia was definitely, he was on the 93 Phillies for sure, man. The, the, the Joe Carter. Yeah. Nice. And did you know that he actually has a rule that's named after him? No. No. So as a result of the Expos trading in Cavili what how do you pronounce his name? In Cavilia. <laughs> that's Thank yeah, you. That's it, yeah. Pete yeah. Cavilia. That immediately after signing him, Major League Baseball instituted a rule where a team cannot trade a drafted player until he has been under contract to the club for at least one calendar year. It became known as the Pete Incavilia rule. So <laughs> I'm assuming he got drafted up. and immediately traded or something. Yes, ex exactly. That is exactly what happened. So we're spoiled. We type into Google, James Petralli age, and we're so used to just things coming up and it's in bold and it says he's 43. 
I went everywhere. And it wasn't until I found this this article on MLB.com where I found out about his dad that they mentioned that he was born in 1983. So we know that that the whole band is generally a couple years younger than us here. So he, much like us, fell in love with the Beatles and Hendrix. And he, you know, started hanging out with friends in their garages and picked up a guitar at age 17. And the first guitar he bought because he loved the Beatles was an Epiphone Casino Natural, which was John Lennon's guitar. All right, let's jump over to, to the bass player, a guy named Steve Tarabecki. Again, musical his whole life. He started out playing keyboards, played a little bit of violin in middle school, which I feel like everybody has to to be in the band. And he didn't pick up a bass until he was 13. And he's been playing bass ever since. Studied music composition at Old Dominion University in Virginia. He moves to Texas in 2005. And again, couldn't find an exact age, but he's in the same wheelhouse as the lead singer and guitar player. So he did grow up listening to his father's vinyl and was never really exposed to mainstream music, was not listening to the radio. And he said about as mainstream as he would get was Yes and Zeppelin and the Beatles. Those are like the most mainstream things. Now he... And I'll see if anybody else chimes in here because this tells you how much of a noob I am or maybe just unfamiliar with all the deep dive stuff. He was really into Ralph's records. Have you heard of this? No. Sent me down a rabbit hole because I'd never heard of it. It was a record label active between 1972 and 1989 known for being run by an avant-garde art collective called The Residence. Any of this sounded familiar? No. Okay, good. I'm not alone then, because this is like (laughs) super hipster shit, right? So I went and found this band, The Residents. It's basically unlistenable art rock, art noise, (laughs) whatever you want to call it. But they started a label. And so this is what Steve Tarabecki is really, really into. I've seen some of this design work. It's like shots of them where their heads are just eyeballs. That's all I know. That's all (laughs) All I know about The Residents. All right, good. I don't feel that terrible then. So his biggest influences, therefore, are, no surprise, a bunch of bands I've never heard of, like R. Stevie Morrow, Tuxedo Moon, Snake Fingers, Cass McCombs, Shintaro Sakamoto. Cass McCombs as an influence seems strange only because, I mean, he's good, but I, I don't know. He's I, a Well, he's a modern guy, too. Yeah. And also, R. Stevie Moore is the guy Dr. Dog is always citing. Totally, R. Steve Moore through the floor, dude. Oh. I remember talking to James back in the day about... Just listening to him through the floor at bottom of the hill, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, you can tell people are good, you know, through the floor." <laughs> well, <laughs> the floor. floor. Yeah, we got to like, give that anecdote some context. So our please. friend James lived above a popular touring club. Yeah, called the Bottom of the Hill in San Francisco, and he would hear sound check for literally every band, as well as you know every show, <laughs> as well as could get into his the shows for bed fun. was like pretty much directly above the stage, and they had rock shows every single night of the week. <laughs> Yeah, absolute oh minimum God. six nights a week, right? Like, yeah, Holy absolutely. Crap. And like, and like, I mean, That's like, crazy. possibly sold out. You know, it's like, what do you think? Like a three hundred cap sort of room, three hundred ish. But they'd sell it out, like consistently. Most, yeah, consistently. No, yeah. It, was, it was a popular club for touring acts, smaller scale touring acts. But like, the White Stripes played there on their way up, and Arcade Fire it had a history. Mm-hmm. I stayed over at James's one time and I slept in his bed and I listened to a Dungan set from the bed. Like I was trying to sleep and it, it was crystal clear. There was no chance of snoozing. Well, I was going to say, do you only hear lows and mids? So it's just like, no, no, you get a lot more than that. 
I think literally where he his room was situated, it was like stage and then just point the speaker diagonally up and you would get to the foot of his bed. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh my God. That is awesome. Yeah. Very nice. So our Steve Moore sounded good through the floor. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's, an, that's an endorsement. <laughs> yeah. All right. So now we're going to uh, move on to the drummer, a guy named Josh Block who also did engineering on a lot of this album and their prior albums. Very little information on him. Basically, all I could find that was he tried his hand at jazz studies in Dallas-Fort Worth and then worked as a session musician in the area. And most recently, he produced for a guy named Leon Bridges, who had a pretty big oh, yeah, hit from sure. 2015. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah sure. okay. So he produced him, so that's kind of his claim to fame. He's since left the band and has started his own studio in Texas and is really focusing on producing. It's interesting, though, because you can hear you can hear the musical chops grow over the course of their career, and you can hear the production and the engineering chops grow as well. And it's mostly this guy, Josh Block, who's also the drummer. So I found it a very interesting week, again, because I went from their initial EP, which was just, you know, sounded like it was recorded in a trash can all the way up through this <laughs> album, which is the first one in a studio. Right. And you can really hear hear them moving along. It's an, it's an aesthetic choice, the trash can. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> which one of these guys cited Marty McFly as an influence? Because I, I caught that in an, in an interview. I missed that. I thought I read everything. God damn it. Yeah, well, he wrote Johnny right. Be Good, right? I mean, right. <laughs> Getting to the genesis of this band, according to James Petralli, the lead singer, is that he and Josh Block, the drummer, actually met at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport in 2002 and really hit it off and vowed to, to get back together. And at that time, Petralli was 19, and I'm assuming Josh Block, again, somewhere in that same range. So they would part ways, but in 2005, they'd come back together to form a band called Park Torch. Park is P-A-R-Q-U-E. So I assume I'm saying that correct. Park Torch. And the only info I could find on them was their MySpace page. So Whoa, <laughs> very, wow. again, very sparsely populated. They had five tracks listed and none of them would load. And I was heartbroken that I could not listen to Park Torch. However, Petrali described them as nasty and confrontational rock. As in the lead singer, a guy named Lucas Anderson, while performing, would go into the crowd and take drinks out of people's hands and just pound them in front of them and like walk back up on the stage. And then after the set, never went and bought them another drink. Is this an appropriate or inappropriate time to say rest in peace, Steve Harwell of Smash Mouth, who would also get completely obliterated and drink people's drinks? I did not know that. And yes, I think this is an appropriate segue into our in memoriam section. <laughs> <laughs> ooh, can, oh, ooh, can we play yesterday's right there? Oh, maybe. Yeah, right, I've, I've always been <laughs> fond of this is the time to remember because it will not last forever. <laughs> in case you needed some Billy Joel. All right. Now, in 2005, this band Park Torch played a gig with another group called Peach Train at a bar called Beerland in Austin, Texas. Peach Train also had a MySpace page and all the songs didn't work either. So now at this point, Park Torch is just vocals, guitar, and drums. And so they borrow Peach Train's bassist, Steve Tarabecki, who we just talked about. 
they get together. He plays this gig with them, and it feels pretty good. So Steve Terabecki joins the trio, Park Torch, and they become a four-piece. So at this point, you've got Josh Block on drums, James Petralli on guitar, Lucas Anderson on vocals, and Steve Terabecki on bass. Now, one of the members, Lucas Anderson, moves to Russia. Not sure why. Hold on. Plus, you got a Gigi Allen-type lead singer, and he just moves to Russia. That's why he leaves the band. I wanted definitely more clarification. He's just trying to fill in the lack of Wikipedia material with, like... Yeah, right. If James Petralli or Steve Terabecki or Lucas Anderson, for that matter, are listening to this, please write to us. Call us. Let us know the backstory Everybody wants to know this. Maybe he's just assuming that that Russian crowds are even drunker, or have stronger drinks in their hands. So if he wants this <laughs> oh, that's alcoholism <laughs> by proxy thing to work, he's got to move. <laughs> I got to move. So he moves to Russia. They're a trio. And now they change their name to White Denim. White Denim arose because they were really into terrible band names and they would just throw around terrible band names. White Denim came up and it stuck. All right. So now it's at this point that they start rehearsing. And lucky enough, Josh Block has a 30-acre plot of land about an hour outside of Austin in the middle of nowhere. And he's got a 27-foot mobile home that he's parked in a corner of the property. And this becomes their studio slash rehearsal space. Wait, those Airstreams are not cheap. And to have all that acreage, like, he's not hes not the one that was the baseball player's kid, was he? <laughs> no, no, that was, that was James Petralli. Yeah, it's that Anki money, dude. Yeah, right. <laughs> So yeah, I again, zero background information on Josh Block, but it sounds like it was an old falling apart trailer. They ripped everything out except a bathroom and they put like a Hammond organ in there, drum sets, guitars. They had like a little control room in there. They even said they put one of those chintzy little kids pianos under the sink in the bathroom where all the good thinking happens when you're on the John that you can like plink, plink out some melodies and stuff. <laughs> so their discography, when you look at it, it's what I consider to be an evolution of a band. And it's hard to cram into a couple of songs to show band growth. I'm going to try, though. So over the course of talking about these albums that they released, I'm going to drop a song in from each one just to give you a flavor about how the band is progressing, not only from their composition and musical performance aspect, but also from the engineering and the production standpoint. So they make a five-track EP called Let's Talk About It, and self-described it as crazy lo-fi garage jam noise. I don't have a song from that, but suffice to say, it's definitely rowdy. It's definitely cheap sounding. Their actual debut was called Workout Holiday. It is on Spotify. There's only some tracks on it, though. You know, we've seen that before with their grayed out. So this album was recorded in 2007 and released in 2008. And they were throwing everything at the wall. Again, not very focused, just trying a little bit of everything. And for them at the time, everything seemed to be sticking when it hit the wall. And so none of them are full-time musicians at this point. They're working on the weekends and they didn't really know what they wanted. They just wanted to try different stuff as a rock band. So sometimes they would mic things directly to try to get different sounds and again, you can kind of hear, hear the experimentation on these earlier records. And they said they weren't really concerned with how it was coming off on the record. They were just going for it. At this time, again, they're just a trio. And it's not a compositional masterpiece. It's just very frenetic, raw, sloppy. And so I'm going to drop a clip in here. This is called Shake, Shake, Shake. 
she's like, I could kind of get down with this. Yeah, right. Like I, I dig it. It's definitely raw, right? It's, yeah, it's definitely garagey. It's got more punky energy. Yeah. All right. So their second album is called Exposure. Some tracks are on Spotify. Recorded and released in 2008. And at this point, they had signed with a UK label. And they were putting out some music and touring over there and were doing decent with this Exposure album. But there were no U.S. record labels that expressed any real interest. And it's weird because Exposure, which is technically their second album, is simply re-released first album. And so I think they might have remastered a couple tunes or maybe even just re-recorded them. When it was released, it went straight to vinyl and digital platforms because the quote was, at this point, CDs seem pretty useless to us. It's <laughs> like, that's pretty... You know, as someone who was in a bar band at the same time with Phil making crappy lo-fi recordings in a windowless room, <laughs> yes. what I take from this is that we should have just stuck with it for like three more records without any Yeah, yeah, totally. We just feedback. Got, we got like 10 more years. We'd be, we'd be there. Yeah. Why did you just get 30 acres in an Airstream trailer? What the, what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> Now, they said they didn't really sell anything, and it could be because they didn't have any distribution agreements. So it's kind of hard to get your music out there, aside from the digital thing. But at the time, trying to get it, your CDs or albums across the country is difficult. So they're working with a company called Transmission Entertainment. And even though they're getting basically zero sales on this album, Transmission Entertainment gives them some cash because they believe in the project. And that allows these guys to quit their day jobs and tour. <laughs> Sorry. I was just thinking about that time we were doing the Big Star episode. And they were, we were talking about their distribution problems. And Adam, you said something like, what's he supposed to do? Just put the records in the back of his car and drive around the country? I was like, that's what touring is. That's what touring is. <laughs> well, these guys are road dogs, too. Piling stuff into the back of an Econo van. 80 gigs a year is actually a lot. You know, if you've got a plane and a whole apparatus, you know, 200 gigs is a lot. But when you're doing it yourself, I mean, these guys are still, it's funny, it's not to downplay them, but to me, it's almost a badge of honor that these guys still break down their own equipment and set up their own equipment at gigs. Like, they're not rock stars. These guys are doing it because they love it. It's kind of fun. And they're, you yeah, know, making kinda, enough to yeah, survive. It's kind of fun. Well, yeah. It's pizza shit out of working at a bank or something. Right, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's jump forward to 2009. They released their third album, Fits, which, I'll be honest, rocks pretty hard. Got some cool Doors moments going on. There's some Farfisa stuff in there. And you can hear them become more focused. It's, it's a more consolidated effort. And this was the first time that making music was their job. Everything prior was, was kind of weekend warrior thing. This is the first time where they're actually focused and, and staying in the studio all week getting this stuff done. And so this one was received pretty well by the critics, but they're still not making a ton of money, right? Again, still driving around the country in a van touring. Uh, Chris Gow also called this one Steely Dan for their time, mm. sort of. I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> You know, it's funny you say that because I almost invoked Steely Dan earlier when we were talking about the way everything is mixed sort of at the same level. I've always thought it's mm -hmm. a strange quality of Steely Dan that after all of the effort they put in it, the lead vocal is sort of oddly buried, right? It's not that you can't hear Fagan. It's not like this, but it did make me think of Steely Dan at times. Yeah, it's an interesting comparison, but worth mentioning that Steely Dan has always had 
a foot and a half squarely planted in pop music. There, there's no reasonable comparison between White Dead and Steely Dan. Chris Gale, you lost me on this one. Hey, I got to give myself props on this because if you type in, so this album, the third album is called Fits, F-I-T-S. When you type white denim fits into Google, good luck. <laughs> 20 pages of ads and catalogs and clothing stores. So I got to give myself a high five on finding anything about this. Album. I see your point. Yeah, no wonder they're still breaking down their own shit. With that kind <laughs> of- <laughs> right. Then they have an album called D. <laughs> Doesn't get much better. But let's play a quick piece of a song called Mirrored and Reversed from the album Fits. Again, a little bit of evolution here. Jumping in now to the fourth album. This is called The Last Day of Summer, and it was self-released in September of 2010. And they did this as a vacation from working on, I believe it was D. So they had all these songs (laughs) in their back catalog since 2006, and they said, well, we just want to make an album for us in the midst of working on another album. Yo, I have a question. Do you guys think these guys do drugs? (laughs) (laughs) Is that a serious question? Absolutely not. <laughs> Listen, just take a moment. Let's just take a moment to take in what Adam just told us. They, we've all made records, and we've all wanted to kill each other at uh-huh. various points through that process. You're telling me that as a break from finishing a record, they then went and made they went and recorded record. another one. That apparently it was a release because I think D was again we'll, we'll we'll hear that the record label was in there they were getting feedback on whether or not it's going to be a success so i think the idea for last day of summer was that they could just go make fun and not not give a shit about what they're doing so they took all these old ideas and tunes and just really just went in and smiled and had fun and threw it down and what you get is what you get i'll tell you what is impressive about them is they are very prolific for a band yeah. that's out there scrapping and on the road and they seem to have continued that into the modern era. They keep releasing records. All right, so we'll drop in one more tune, uh, just a snippet of this last day of summer. This one is called If You're Changing. So we're flashing forward now. We're in 2010, and a couple things happen. First, they added a second guitar player, a guy named Austin Jenkins. That really reinvigorated the band, who at this point had been going for five, six years. So there's a new energy, and you guys all know the the new energy that comes sure. when you add in a new person. Yeah, it's it's really a, there's cool. There's a lineup shakeup, you know? Yeah, totally, yeah, totally. yeah. And also, 
they're now for the out al- this album D, they're jumping into a proper studio. So I think those two things really opened up the band's creative efforts and their overall sound, namely knocking off some of the rougher edges of some of the prior albums. And I think that's why this album D was chosen for the 1001 list from all of the the available albums in their catalog. I'm assuming this is the only one of their records on the list. Yeah, yeah, this is the only one. Yeah, that is the thing I was wondering. So that is helpful, Adam, like why this record amidst others. It's always challenging. You alluded to it at the top to judge these records that are so recent. We can't look downstream because time will not allow it. So all we can really do is talk about how this is uh, made up of things from before it. But yeah, given how many records they've produced and given that this wasn't a huge hit record, I think as right. we mentioned, the next one saw more wider release. I think they might have even had the Wilco guys help produce some of yeah, it or something. They, after this album, they jump in with Jeff Tweedy into his studio. And they also tour with Wilco to promote this album, D. All right, so now we're on this album, D. It was released in May of 2011. It was the first album, again, with a major label. Well, I won't even say major label, but just a label, Downtown Records. And that label was offering artistic notes, looking for ROI. So while James Petrali said the recording never felt laborious, but it felt like they were trying to deliver something that was viewed as a product. And they didn't have representation at the time, and they didn't really have a business translator. So they took all the criticism from the label really personally. So it it wasn't the greatest experience recording this album. Here's what I just heard. The label paid for everything, and they also wanted to make money. How dare you, (laughs) capitalism. (laughs) I mentioned that they toured with Wilco, and again, you just talk about a band evolving. They started playing really big venues with Wilco, and it turns out when you're in a big room, read in arena. Ooh, let me guess. uh, A lot of those notes, a lot of those new notes get lost. So they also started to simplify their live show depending on the room. Yeah, there's a good reason Jazz Fusion was not selling out Madison Square Garden, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's an interesting chicken and egg that doesn't get talked about nearly enough is that as bands get bigger, the songs, the arrangements, how you perform them not just visually, but also sonically, has to change. And then, yes. yeah, that feeds back into how you write the next bits of recording. So the reality is, it's because Jazz Fusion wasn't popular enough to play Madison Square Garden. But if it had gotten to that level, it would have continued evolving in that direction. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I'm, I'm thinking now back to when we did the uh, Kanye episode, and I remember he talks about how, as his career went on, he learned how to do arena music from touring with U2. Like he always talks about how when after he toured with them, he was like, oh, if I'm playing these spaces, like I need to do this way differently. There's a whole method to doing this arena stuff. Yeah, I always I had a specific experience that I always think of of seeing the shins at a theater show and they had like just it must have been shortly after Garden State came out and they were kind of on the way up and so I remember the venue even got changed from a club show to a theater show from the time I bought the ticket because they were selling more seats and although they they didn't hit any wrong notes I could just tell they hadn't really sized up to that venue yet. All right speaking of sizing up let's jump into our favorite segment by the numbers. All right, our first number today is 11. 
the number of studio albums these guys have created as recent as 2023. Although those first two albums are almost the same, so I don't know, I'd maybe consider it 10. 809, the number of Major League Baseball games that Gino Petrali played. <laughs> yeah, that's not bad, is he? He had seven seasons. Yeah, He's a catcher? Yeah, yep. That's a career. There you go. His knees must be <laughs> <Yeah>. shot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the number five. That's the personnel on the prior album, which was Last Day of Summer. The number 16, the personnel on this album, D. Why the so many people? You just got a studio. You got a record label involved now. There was a mixer. There was an engineer. There was a producer. There was an art guy. There was a line of 10 flute players just yep. trying out. <laughs> Jethro Tull's... <laughs> Ian Anderson showed up, the one and only flute player I will ever know. No, his name is Jethro Tull, all right? <laughs> the number 70, the number of gigs they played in 2011, the number 1472, as in the Sears Silvertone 1472 amp. It's a 1x12 combo tubed that you would get from the Sears catalog. Is that the one where the guitar comes in, the, ca- the amp's in the case? It looks more like a television. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, I know the, I know the one Yeah, which is about. badass. Yeah. I had no idea that Sears, ma- I knew they made guitars from back in the day, and houses, of course. I've played through one of those. They definitely sound like a distortion pedal. Right, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. which it, <laughs> it, it says a lot about their sound after I went and looked for a demo on this guitar amp. All right, number one. The number of times white denim opened for the band, the Monotonics. And this is one of the greatest stories I've ever heard. So they opened for a band called the Monotonics at a pizza parlor. I think this was in Austin. And the band after them, the Monotonics, their shtick was that they would take trash cans and pour them on each other on stage. And all of the trash cans in the pizza parlor had like pizza and salad and Caesar dressing and soda. And they said that People in the front were literally throwing up because it smelled so bad as these guys were throwing trash on each other. And and White Denim was like running out the back door trying to grab some air, which was just like an amazing story. Well, and if you knew they were going to do that, man, you could really like get there ahead of time and (laughs) wreak some havoc. I want to believe that the monotonics just toiled away with this one gimmick for decades themselves. (laughs) Like, no, no, it's going to hit this time. This is our year. It kind of worked for Gallagher, so let's... uh... All right, and finally, the number five. And how's this for a segue? That's the number of stars I'd love for you to rate the show on your podcasting platform. That's right. I'm asking you, our listeners, that if you're finding today's episode interesting, if you've smiled, laughed, or thrown a shoe at your smart speaker, that means you've felt something. And if you want to help us continue to grow, it would mean the world to us if you can give us a rating and a review. And with that, let's jump into some tunes. All right, so first up on our list here, we are jumping in with a song called It's Him! So like a lot of the record, this song feels like a roller coaster. The drummer rips. There's no doubt about it. I very much appreciated the breakdown that happens at 222. 
it felt like a much needed break from the assault of notes and ideas I was of getting. Noodly noodles, yes. Because even the bass gets in on some noodles right around that moment. <laughs> and I, I wrote down the same thing, which is it comes in and it hits hard and it's a nice break. It's a little too a whole lot of love in that break for me, unless I, or maybe another Zeppelin song I'm thinking of, but it, but the it, it's reminiscent of something that I've heard a million times. Um, but yeah, I agree. It was a good good time to let it breathe. Yeah, they have. I think they have a lot of Zeppelin in them. Actually, I'm surprised we haven't referenced them more. Yeah, it's, it's a good. It's definitely a good uh, whole lot of love pull. This song kind of gave me like a new pornographer's vibe, right? When it kicks off, like this is like the, when when this kicked off, I was like, oh, I get the indie rock sort of reference. It quickly moved in other directions, but like my expectation was sort of immediately sort of met. And right out of the gate, it's not a super straightforward song structure which I appreciated. Talking about the rhythm section too, there is this part, and I have yet to figure out the time signature, and I tried for about 15 minutes trying to count out this part, which will drop here. And all I could figure out was that the first bar has seven, and then it just goes off. And it's very confusing because there's a different time signature, but they also flip the accents. When you're landing, it's like all of a sudden now the bass is hitting on the and, and it's just all over the place, but somehow you get to the end of it and you're still bobbing your head and it still works. So I thought that the rhythm section to pull this off cleanly was just awesome. Well, can I just say, Adam, you made me feel a lot better because I also attempted to count out what was going on in this song and I was unable and I thought it was just because I'm bad at that. You know what I did like about this song, though, is and, and even some of these songs is that I think a lot of progressive rock or music that takes liberties with time signatures can sometimes sound really esoteric and, and wonky. But I've made notes of many time changes throughout this album, but not on this song. It's almost like they could flex a little bit, but still make something that wasn't like just for them that sounded like a song. And so, I, yeah, I thought this was a, a nice like set the table pretty well, set the tone and give them something to sink their teeth into without it coming across as too like pretentious or uh, or weird. Yeah, I agree. And to harken back to your earlier comment, Alan, about it having that reverse effect, I can't exa remember exactly how you phrased it, but on the first couple listens through, I thought, hey, this is very palatable. This has a sheen. I know there's complex things going on, but it's extremely smooth to the listener's ear relative. And then the more I dove in, the more confused I found my brain to be. I, I think I called it like a reverse slow burn or something where I think on its face, like there's the song craft on here, I think, is pretty good, especially when you think of the progressive and the psychedelic elements. But I definitely did find that the more I listened to the tracks, there's something a little bit unsettling for me or just maybe too much going on in some areas. But they do a really good job of sort of packing it all together in a way that leaves you guessing a little bit, I think. I think the bass player at times overplays, but it works because... And it could be the way they're stacking things or the way they're leaving some open and empty space. Like there's a moment at the 38 second mark where after something like five times through the pattern that they're playing, the bass jumps up an octave and does kind of a little noodly thing. Oh, you can have it in a way that you might want it. 
It's busy. Like if I was to be watching his hands, it would be busy, but it doesn't come off as overly busy on the on the track. So, and I think that comes from being originally being a trio too. Like it was bass, drums, guitar, and so he had to fill in some spots. Something I didn't think about until something about what you just said sort of made me think about this. There isn't a lot of guitar strumming or piano wonking. Like there isn't the sort of quintessential singer-songwriter instrument chewing up a lot of space on like really any in any of these arrangements. It's just riffs. Yeah, like <laughs> I would be hard pressed to say like what are the chord changes? Like no doubt there are chord changes. Like many of these songs are probably right. just like two chords. But it doesn't feel like that at all, right? It's a lot of you know, like yeah. spinning around you. That's a good sound drop. We need to <laughs> say that one. Which is part of what makes it disorienting is there's no a lot of, we're used to hearing this kind of anchor instrument is what you're saying. Yeah, so this kind exactly. of rhythm instrument anchor us to a certain uh-huh. chord that everything else is playing on top of. And similar with the rhythm, rarely, if ever, does he lock into rock beat one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. All right, let's move on to the second song on our focus list. This one is called Anvil Everything. Phil, this is your like boobity 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 song. Totally, absolutely. Yeah, this is, yeah, I literally, yeah, exactly. Apparently, this is the one I was thinking of. Yeah, this rocks. This is this probably reminded me the most of stuff I've enjoyed in the past, like Don Caballero. I like the opening a lot. I like. I wish it got even heavier, and I also wish that that this is one of the songs where I wish that they allowed some of the tones or the instruments to truly take the lead in different parts. I think that it's. It's a feature, not a bug, of their songcraft that everything is interlocking and no one part is more important than another part. But that also holds it back a little bit for my enjoyment. I I found this to be one of the most effective, reminds me of Radiohead, but doesn't sound like Radiohead. Well, I think the vocals on a lot of this album, actually, I purposely avoided that reference because I didn't know if it would come across as like crass or not. But I felt like a lot of the songs, the vocals specifically had that airy, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of like a Radiohead vocal vibe. Petrali can sing too. I think he's a really nice range. I th- feel like he has a range that's even a bit wider than a lot of rock singers. But on some of those live things I watched, he can wail. He hits really high notes and he's doing it for an hour and a half. Again, the guy's a, a road dog. Yeah, I think the vocals are pretty good for the most part on this album. I do think, I know it's been mentioned a few times already, but. I, and I normally don't pay attention a lot to the mixing, but I do feel like the vocals, despite being good, were mixed a little too in the mix and not there, there wasn't a lot of like differentiation, I felt like in that in that sense. Phil, if you go to 246, I don't know why I said Phil, uh, this is where I got fish vibes. Yeah, Gaiuti. 
that yeah, fish yeah, song. sure, yeah, totally. Is that yeah, is that yeah, the tune? Yeah, good, well, it's it's a tune that I think if we wanted to smash that riff in here, there's a lot of that. Yeah, I hear you because that's one of the only times where, certainly, where his guitar tone reminded me of Trey Anastasio, right? It has that kind yeah, of maybe, squeaky, maybe that was squonky yeah. thing. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot of the guitar tone, and I was even struck by this when I was watching him live, just has this low buzz, like just fuzz pedal. The whole volume is kind of turned down, and the fuzz pedal's just on at a relatively low caliber, which makes it sound like you're just coming through a Sears amp that you got for $5. But that's right. the goal. <laughs> right, that's the goal. $7,000 of pedals to make it sound like that. <laughs> I did feel like this must have been one of the songs where you can really tell that, I guess you said the bass player collects, you know, fuzz pedals for bass. Uh, I, ass- it's, I assume. It's because driving like- on this song. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great transition point. Buckle up if you like overdriven bass for the next song, which is called Is and Is and Is. This is probably my favorite song of the focus list. Not of the record. I think we skipped over the ones that really caught my ear. But I, one thing I will say that's in a little bit of contrast to the other ones we've been talking about, this one has a much more discernible build to it. It's intense in a low-key way, and then it goes like that for 90 seconds, and then it breaks open into this heavy rock song. And specifically, the guy's voice, I like it when his voice gets up to that high register he's belting. And he doesn't do it that often on this record. I think he does it a little more later in their career. I'm, I'm somewhat guessing, but I like it. I like that version of his voice. I do think it's an interesting, it's, it's just not what I would have expected his like growl voice to sound like. It's very masculine and has like, you know, I'm not going to go invoke Bob Seger or anything, but it's like, it's just a mm-hmm. lot more like. It's, it's got a, like a heft to it. I yeah. Think. It's like, it d- definitely like this is a, a moment where I guess I can kind of see the Southern rock more than mm. ma- yeah. other moments. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It definitely, definitely has a Southernness to it. I actually, one of the bands, I don't know if I mentioned this already, but I, I feel like the band Little Feet came to mind a few times in this album. And I think there's, That's really that comes through a little bit for me. Even I don't know that I would say they're Southern rock per se, but they have some of those like Almond Brothers. like Yeah, they're like a Southern prog. It's like a weird mashup that almost doesn't make sense. Yet here it is, you know? So after that kick-ass chorus, Rob, that you said that really comes in, right? Takes you out of this kind of weird floaty first half of the song they really make you wait for it the second time around and they build up to it super nice so at around 217 
they add in a banjo that's doing this dinky, 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 dinky thing. And at some point, a little into that, the bass starts doing that same thing. And so you know that something's coming, right? Well, you obviously know the chorus is coming. It just makes it so pensive that when they do finally hit that again, it's such a payoff. Yeah, and see, it's this—it's stuff like this that makes me somewhat push back on the great song craft aspect. Clearly, a lot of care was put in, and it is crafted in the sense that they wrote, very consciously wrote, every single instrument's part of every single section. And that's one version of what we could call great song craft. But I don't always think they have a great sense of the arc of a song. This is this would be an exception to that. I think there's more of an arc in this song. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I may have mentioned something about their song craft, I think, being like decent. Where I think I was coming from there is if you and, and this is me recontextualizing them with like the jam band thing, that if you see a lot of these types of bands, they're amazing live. And then you go buy their CD and it sucks. And and there's like right. a major drop off. And I feel like this, I don't know what they sound like live other than just like a YouTube video here and there. But from the way people talk about their live shows, I think this these sound like their song that can sort of like stand on their own. And they're not just necessarily an excuse to just riff out or jam out. No, no. As somebody who's played in rock bands, I would love for somebody to be like, yo, I wrote this song. It's called, you know, like, yeah, check this out. Is it, is it, is Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'd be like, yeah, it's pretty sick, you know. Uh, Let's do that. (laughs) They really committed to this bad naming conventions yeah, approach bad, man oh yeah i mean it's yeah. him is good compared to the other names right anvil everything <laughs> yeah they said they just pick words that look weird and just again in Cavilia, right like you just <laughs> just pick some weird words and throw them together and speaking of weird names we're gonna round out our focus list here with the last tune this for me was my low light on the album This is called River to Consider. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this song. Yeah. I just thought it was kind of meh or corny. That kind of samba. I don't even know what that, what is that rhythm that they're doing there? It's it just, white, white guy calypso. Okay. Thank you. I feel better now. It's like, it just doesn't, it just feels like something we would have done in high school. Like your 16 year old drummer friend learns a new beat and you're like, oh, I can do this. Hey, look, guys, we're playing a different, a different genre. Yes. Really? <laughs> now that Jimmy Buffett's gone, maybe he can, this can fill in. <laughs> Oh, yeah, there's a void now that needs to be filled. This reminded me, there's a band called the String Cheese Incident that... See you later, guys. That does... (laughs) That's it for me. (laughs) Good night. No, I'm I'm going to shit on them, so, like, but... (laughs) 
but I think they do what you're referring to a lot where they do sort of like a half-assed Latin kind of thing. Yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, not just in the, with the string cheese reference, but you know there are certain types of cultural music that it seems at an absolute minimum it requires a fairly material immersion into the culture to be able to like really do it right. I didn't really think it was bad for me, the record. Me, I didn't like, I, I, quite I like know it. what to call a low light on this record. It all sounded yeah right, somewhat of a piece. I wrote that this was equal parts Chick Corea's Spain and. Seals and Croft, a haughty brew. Yeah, it gave me like obvious Jethro Tull, but also some Van Morrison and Full in the Rain vibes. You know, maybe that's the Calypso. Ah. I found this a little bit annoying because I mentioned earlier I like when the time changes feel organic, but this one, you know, the, I think it sort of starts in seven, then the verse is in four, even though it still seems like it's a weird time signature, but then it goes to five, and like I think that's just too much change just for the sake of it yeah i got a little lost in the sauce on this song i don't think it was it was bad terrible but yeah right you know it wasn't like my favorite song here's uh here's here's one for the fan mail five four is a crime against nature Uh oh all the dave Dave brubeck fans (laughs) gonna come after us (laughs) take five as 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 an outlier Five has never felt natural, ever. But, you know, let me have it. Tell me all the wonderful songs in 5-4 that I've been missing out on. <laughs> really dance to. All right, and on that note, gentlemen, let's throw it around the room and vote on whether or not the album D by the band White Denim deserves to be listened to before you die. Let's throw it over to Rob first. Oh, me first. I have to admit, I am torn. I'm really torn here. Guys, because I think by the standard criteria, this doesn't quite make the cut, but it's also such a modern record, it's a little bit hard to tell. On the other hand, I think modern DIY rock bands like this are few and far between, especially the ones that write good songs and put care into their recordings, and they need our support. So I'm ultimately going to land on yes, because I want to support White Denim and their ilk, And because I think it's important for the music listener, especially the modern one, to understand that bands like this still exist. They're out there, but you need to kind of seek them out. All right. That's a yes from Rob. Let's throw it over to Alan. Oh, man. Yeah, I am also very torn. I I love these kind of albums because it's sort of rare that I feel like I'm still indecisive up until the last minute. I'm going to give it a yes, but barely. And I think... Obviously, yeah, we there's we can't talk about legacy or in the canon or anything like that. So it's hard to say that yes, this holds up with the likes of you know like the Zeppelins and the the Greats. But you know, I feel like I'm not done with this band. I feel like I I want to at least like dig in a little bit more. Maybe try to catch them live, even though they probably have a way different lineup at this point. And who knows if they're still bringing the energy maybe that they they may have once, but. I'm glad they're on my radar. I didn't know much about them before. And uh, yeah, so I'll give it a minuscule margin, yes. <laughs> Scraping by. Phil, what say you? Adam, what are you going to say? <laughs> no, 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 no. I can't no, divulge No, that. seriously. This was also my first meaningful dive into White Denim this week. I, I think I had seen them on like Fallon or one of the late night shows before. I definitely obviously come across some songs in the past that I thought were pretty hip. I really enjoyed the listen this week. I thought it was really challenging. It made me very curious about the band in general and sort of wanting to just dig into some more of the material. Definitely made me curious about 
seeing them live, I definitely see how it could go in like a direction that I could think is really cool or a direction that like, you know, might overwhelm me, but I would be interested in, in experiencing that. So in this case, I, I, yeah, in the, I'm, I'm giving white denim a, a, a pass. I'm giving them a yes, but I ask what you were going to say, because I feel like is it, this is not on a unanimous level. I am also going to say yes Fuck. for the following reasons. <laughs> it's going to be a clean sweep, but let me chime in here. That I've spent the last week living with their discography prior to this album. And so at least four or five times I listened from that first LP all the way through up to this one. And you can definitely hear them grow as musicians, as songwriters, as engineers, as producers. And isn't that what music is about? It's about growing and evolving and while still managing to keep their foot in the rock and roll world. So for me, it's a yes. I wish I had jumped on their on the bandwagon back when I saw them in 2013. So a little regret there because I wish I had just been more into their catalog uh, before now. So there you have it. Hey, white denim. It's a clean sweep. Well done, gentlemen. All right. Now, don't forget that we here at the show have a week to prepare and an hour to share. So if we miss something crucial, got something wrong, or you think we knocked it out of the park, please send us an email at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. We started doing the show to learn more about music, and we found that you, the audience, have provided a ton of useful insight. Great context that we sometimes miss, so we really appreciate everyone who has written into us before, and we hope you do the same. And speaking of emails, let's throw it over to Rob, who's got his hand in that mailbag. Thanks, Adam. Excited to get into the mailbag. Write us, please, about anything and everything, but especially our upcoming request month, listener requests. Oh, that's right. We are finally casting the Albinator to the to the depths of the basement and taking requests. <laughs> so write us in ASAP so we can start preparing for whatever y'all want to hear. But okay, here's some emails that we've... Is Tom, is Tom, does Tom know about this? Is he going to abide the Albinator? Tom is hip to this, yeah. yeah, yeah. Shocking. Either that or he's has his mouth duct taped shut and he's in my trunk right now. Mm, okay. <laughs> well, you know, it's, you know sounds like Okay, cool. I, I look I forward to finding out. He's just out. trying to kill the snoring, you know? Okay. <laughs> Back to the mailbag. So Fabian writes, really appreciate your podcast. It is amazing how much I learned listening to it. But this time I was listening to the specials where you guys were talking at Baroud Boy's attire and the way the specials dressed. And there was a little mistake around minute 18. First of all, thank you. Putting time a timestamp in there. Yes. If I well was done. A, if I really appreciated it, I'd probably go back and edit it <laughs> 1984 style so that, that your mistake would <laughs> be erased from history. But he says, when you guys mentioned that the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones were giving homage to the two-tone era and the specials, you have to actually realize that all this started in Jamaica with Rude Boys and not with the specials. And you can see how Bob Marley and Bunny Whaler and Peter Tosh used to dress up. They were Rude Boys, and they wore the finest and most elegant clothes because they wanted to be someone in society that they weren't yet. Right. And so the specials were referencing that. Sorry, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones were referencing that, as was everyone else. The specials were referencing that, that stuff that was happening in Jamaica. So credit where credit's due. It really all goes back to Jamaica, including the fashion. 
Yeah, that's fair. No, that's great. And I think like, I know we didn't get too much into that, into the actual history of Scott and more focused around that sort of second wave, which was sort of a revival of that first wave that he's referring to. But yeah, no, that's a great, it's a great call out. Totally. It's good context. And we're excited to go deeper into that on some more records in the future. And then I picked this one because it's from quite far afield. This is Mark writing to us from Johannesburg in South Africa. He says, I just want to say I'm loving, all caps, your podcast. I've only just started it. I finished Prodigy today. It was a complete hoot. Mostly I've been in sync with what you guys have been saying, except I'm a big fan of The Smiths' The Queen is Dead. I'm glad you at least voted for it as being worthy of a listen. I fear you may have lost half your audience if you had completely written it off. Ha, ha, ha. Well, this is where I'd like to remind the listeners that I didn't write it off. I was playing defense on the Smiths, and as Tom likes yeah, to say... I went pretty hard. If yeah. you'd like to get your missive read on the air, please just agree with me, Rob. That's Rob at... No, I, I wanted to mention it because Mark's writing from Johannesburg. I don't know how many fans we have in South Africa, but that's pretty cool. That's pretty exciting. It's pretty far away. He closes by saying, you guys are funny and informative at the same time. It's a great combination. Keep up the good work. Awesome. Yeah, man. Great. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. That's fantastic. I am going to leave it in Rob's court because ah, yes. he does, in fact, have the albinator. It has not yet been put in the basement for storage or repair no no in fact it's had its earmuffs on so it couldn't hear us talking about it in the those terrible ways and now i shall i shall take them off and and spur it into action so without further ado we're going to get our homework for next week this coming week we shall be listening to ah it's the band emerson lake and palmer Ooh. and the album is tarkus uh, I guess I guess this week wasn't weird oh, enough. No. We gotta, oh my <laughs> god! Oh, I see now. I Dude. forgot to flip it from Prague to not Prague. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> god. is that the one with uh, in the beginning on it? No, I, I I like know this cover at a glance, but I don't know these song titles. Looking at it's them. got Lucky Lucky Man. No, I don't think, I think Lucky Man's no. on this one. Okay, it's, we'll have to see. I don't know too much yeah, about them. Yeah. They had a storied career i remember they yeah. have that one other not this one another lp that opens up like a the brain salad surgery lp has a cool package yeah i right. remember that from my parents record collection but i guess we'll have to dive in mm-hmm. yeah oh very very exciting all right well there you go folks you have your homework assignment join along with us this week we're going to be listening to tarkus by the band emerson lake and palmer listen to it at home with us you're all ready to go that's going to do it for us today at 1001 Album Complaints. I'm Adam. I'm Rob. I'm Alan. And I'm Phil. Boosh. 